Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. We are broadcasting live from Carbonite's Investor Day at their international headquarters in downtown Boston. And uh, well, we're joined really by our host right now, Muhammad Ali. He is the president and the chief executive of Carbonite. Thank you very much for hosting us. Thank you for ha- for being here. Um, let's begin by just maybe outlining for people uh, a bit of a strategy change on the part of Carbonite. Because I can remember when it was focused almost exclusively on the consumer, back up your data and don't worry about it. Right. But there's been a shift. You bought some assets from Seagate. You purchased a, a company, I believe, earlier in the year, a Double did. Take Software, mm-hmm. in order to uh, kind of shift your strategy to move more into the enterprise. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. No, thank you for asking. Today is actually a big day here at Carbonite. We're using our investor day as an opportunity to really showcase the strategy that we've implemented over the last three years which is a huge transformation for the company. As you pointed out, we used to be, and we still are, that reliable company that backs up your laptop. But today, we now actually have a portfolio that we have built, both organically and inorganically, that does what we call complete data protection. As you know, data is everywhere now. It's the most important asset. It's in the cloud. It's in a lot of different clouds. It's on-prem. It's on a whole bunch of operating systems. We're one of the very, very few companies now that can protect all that data, your whole IT system, regardless of where it is. Mohammed, uh, you previously were chief strategy officer at Hewlett Packard. Uh, You've been at IBM. This is a smaller company, and I'm wondering, can you speak to the unique challenges uh, being at a scrappier organization than, say, one of these uh, legacy behemoth tech companies? Sure. You know, I actually started out my career at a small company. It was called Adobe before it became a big company. And then I did an artificial intelligence startup. Today, we call that a big data startup. So I love the small company. I love the scrappiness. Um, Now, you know, when I got to IBM and to HP, um, one of the the things that, that that scrappiness was able to allow me to do is to help those companies transform because it was very difficult for those companies to transform from within. And so I, you know, I helped IBM transform into a software and services company, again, through a large number of uh, divestitures and acquisitions to rebuild the portfolio. Uh, and then at HP, I, you know, I led the project to split the company into various parts. Again, sort of that scrappy thinking, uh, if the company is too big to really be successful, can you make the smaller part successful? So this, the, you know, the scrappy thinking, as regardless of whether it's big company or small company, is really important. We have that scrappy thinking here at Carbonite. And that's why I think we've been able to you know, more than double the company in the last uh, two and a half years. Does that uh, scrappy uh, attitude apply also to spending money on marketing? Because uh, this is a competitive <laughs> business. And yeah. uh, as Lisa said, you, you are smaller than some of your competitors. 
this, uh, I'm just going to preview maybe one of the questions you're going to get at your investor day, which yeah. is, you know, how much you're going to spend a lot of money on this. How are you going to uh, afford all this? Yeah. I mean, you know, we've been around for 12 years. Uh, we started out as one of the very first companies that advertised on radio, software companies uh, that advertise in radio. And we have learned through a tremendous amount of data and analytics how to best deploy that money. And so 12 years later, we can, you know, we have an extremely advanced business intelligence team that uses some of those artificial intelligence techniques that I've talked about, uh, you know, just, just a, a little while ago to determine how to best place that money and make it return in the most efficient way. You know, one thing that we hear again and again from a variety of chief executive officers is uh, how difficult it is to hire talent right now. Yes, uh, and yes. that, you know, that the job market is incredibly tight, particularly in certain areas. And I'm wondering, uh, you know, clearly based on the clear love of Star Wars in your offices, <laughs> um, you know, there is a certain culture here. But I'm wondering on a broader level how concerned you are about um, sort of bigger U.S. policies like the H-1B visa policy uh, and, and whether you view that potentially affecting your business. Oh, very concerned. And it certainly affects our business. But, you know, if you think about America, America was really built on this, uh, you know, incredible combination of domestic talent and immigrant talent. I mean, not just for the last few years, but for 200 years. Um, you know, I walked in the office this morning and I got this beautiful card with this long letter inside from one of our employees. And I'm just going to read one paragraph. And she came, she came from China. It was four years ago that I decided to come to the United States to pursue my MBA because I believe that if I work hard towards a clear goal, anything is possible. And I found that with the right attitude and inspirational leadership, such dreams can come true. Now, we didn't hire her because she's from China. We hired her because she was globally the best candidate for the job. That's what makes American companies strong. We're able to hire the best and we're able to innovate better than anyone else. If somehow, all of a sudden, that is curtailed or these people go elsewhere, we have, we have a, a, a problem here. And if you think about the fact that over 50% of uh, Fortune 500 companies here in Massachusetts were started by an immigrant or a child of an immigrant, if we no longer have those people, it's going to affect our economy. You know, earlier we were speaking with uh, your chief evangelist, Norman uh, Guardano. That's great. And, uh, yes, and uh, we, we were talking about the yeah. cyber threats and cyber yeah. attacks because, of course, these are in the, the headlines in, in the news. Of course, news. Equifax. Um, yeah. in, indeed. I want to get mm -hmm. your thoughts on that. And what do you believe will happen as a result? Uh, well, so, I, I, unfortunately, I think we live in an era where more and more of these things are going to happen. And what Carbonite does is it, allow, it allows you to bring your business back to life after you've been either attacked by one of these uh, you know, cyber uh, crime situations, whether it's ransomware, whether you've been hit by Hurricane Irma, whatever the situation, Carbonite will bring your company back to life. Uh, now, you still have to clean up afterwards, as Equifax will have to do, but I, I, you know, unfortunately, there are just so many of these cyber weapons out there now, developed either by industry or by cyber criminals, or, or governments, and they're being leaked. So I, I think we are in actually a very complicated time here. Well, I, I'd love to wrap my head around what that means to bring the business back. Does it mean uh, restoring the data? Does it mean uh, putting new encryptions in to prevent another attack? What does that mean to you? Yeah, so, um, so first and foremost, it's about resurrecting the business. So if you get hit by a tornado or a hurricane, as was 
the case just recently. Uh, we have a customer who called us right before this hurricane uh, was about to hit the island, the Caribbean, and said, we need you to back up our system so that if we no longer have a hotel there, at least from home, we, can, we have everything. We can resurrect this, maybe not in that uh, computer environment, maybe in your cloud, and that's something we can do. We could spin up your entire IT environment in our cloud and have you run as long as you need to in our cloud to keep going. Airlines, for example, use us to ensure high availability. So if their systems go down, they fail over to our systems and they keep running. Now, in terms of preventive aspects, right, uh, like we also provide some level of security. But at the end of the day, you're most likely going to get hit. Muhammad Ali, thank you so much. Muhammad Ali, President and Chief Executive Officer of Carbonite, based in Boston. All right, let's talk about the future when it comes to small cap stocks. And here to help us is Drew Beja. He is the Vice President Portfolio Manager of the GIM Small Cap Focused Growth Strategy for Granaham Investment Management, a firm wide. They manage over a billion dollars. The Small Cap Focused Growth Fund has about a quarter of a billion dollars, and they are based in Waltham, Mass. Drew, thank you very much for being with us and coming in. Uh, maybe just, first of all, make the case for small cap stocks for people that may not be familiar with this particular asset class? Sure. So we're, uh, we're looking for small cap growth companies. And, you know, our, our clients tend to be uh, pension plans, endowments that need returns to uh, essentially pay, pay uh, pensioners their retirement. But what characterizes from... small cap for you? Right. So small cap, typically it's uh, under $2 billion, but the sweet spot's around a $1 billion in market cap. And the idea is that these companies, because they're small, can grow faster and accumulate, um, uh, can appreciate over the long long haul. So, Drew, I'm looking at the performance of this fund, and it's up uh, more than 10% year-to-date, which is ahead of the Russell 2000. And I'm wondering, you know, what, what were the main drivers? What were the sort of wagers that you got, that you got right? Uh, so, in general, uh, as I mentioned, we're looking for companies that can grow 15, 20, 25% and uh, uh, stocks that have good risk-reward. And uh, we take fairly concentrated bets, 5 6 7% of the portfolio uh, at times. And this year, I think we're actually up about 25% or so. And, and what ha- uh, 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 we've been able to do is, is the bigger bets have worked out. And for the most part, the smaller bets, um, the ones that haven't worked out are... are uh, have been smaller positions. So what, are some of the, combination. what are some of the companies that have been uh, big winners? So uh, we recently uh, exited a position in Shopify, which is no longer small cap, but is, uh, you know, a, a, an e-commerce su- solutions provider for small to medium-sized businesses that is has done very well this year. And risk-reward and market cap uh, caused us to exit the position. What, ca- what, what kind of uh, work do you have to do in order to get the information necessary to make these kinds of investments? Because many small cap stocks are not covered by any analysts, and there doesn't seem to be a large following. Sure. So at, at Granahan, we're a pretty small shop. We have about 20 people, but uh, seven of us are very experienced in small caps. So we have a very experienced team that is is looking for these small cap growth companies. I call them uh, desert island companies because if you sent me to a desert island and come back five, six, seven, ten years from now, 
they'd be uh, much, much more valuable, much bigger. So part of what we do is exclusively look for those companies, and it's easier to find uh, diamonds in the rough if, if you're if you're exclusively right, but where do you go to where do you go to find these I mean is it someone that comes in with an idea says oh my family just bought something or you went to an investor presentation because a lot of companies have trouble getting uh, getting any kind of following or anybody to watch you know watch over them sure well as I mentioned we have seven people looking for these desert islands secular growers and uh, uh, in that we cover a pretty wide net and can quickly reject most companies. So industry um, contacts, suppliers, customers of companies yeah. we already know, etc. So, Drew, you know, it's, it's sort of this popular belief right now that there's money flowing toward anything and everything that asks for money right now, just given the uh, current backdrop, backdrop of central bank liquidity. Uh, do you think that that is an inaccurate characterization of this current market? Uh, I'd have to say that there is uh, capital's not scarce, um, growth is scarce, and so I think you're seeing um, and, and rates are low. So that combination is leading toward investors to look for anything where they can have uh, 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 prospects for growth. Well, but I guess that what I'm getting at is, you know, how do you sort of adjust your models to understand? what value is at a time when there is so much capital that's pushing up valuations uh, and how do you adjust your, your expectations for growth going forward uh, sure. you know based on the idea that this might this might end yeah so that you separate the asset from the price of the asset so the asset has in our case little to do with uh, the access to capital there's there's plenty of capital so that asset and our growth expectations we're only looking for these companies that are pretty rare that can sustain growth in terms of pricing of the asset you're right there's been a flood of capital and what we do is a probability weighted expected return which has good scenarios and bad scenarios and we probably weight them so it, it it tries to capture both so real quick 30 seconds, what's your best uh, idea right now that you're looking at or company that you've recently bought? Uh, well, not the best idea because we, we have a, a fairly so concentrate, concentrated uh, uh, portfolio. But for example, there's a company here in Boston called HubSpot. Uh, it's a platform for small to medium-sized businesses. They're basically created a category called inbound marketing. We use it, high value add, open-ended opportunity, very interesting desert island company. The stock we also think has good risk reward and probability weighted expected return. Drew Beja, thank you so much for joining us. Drew Beja is Vice President and Portfolio Manager of the GIM Small Cap Focused Growth Strategy for Granahan Investment Management, which manages uh, about a billion dollars and is based in Waltham, Massachusetts. Let's bring in Margaret Tolive right now, our White House correspondent. Margaret is in Washington. And Margaret, I'm wondering if you could uh, just sort of unpack a little bit of what the president was describing, because it seems as though he was making a very great distinction between the people of the various countries and the responsibilities of the world leaders in order to fulfill this promise, as he describes it, of freedom, justice and peace. 
you know, the, it, it's really interesting because when you hear the two messages of the president's speech, one was sort of uh, uniting the world around action, uh, particularly towards North Korea and also uh, on Iran. But the second was to kind of uh, drill home on this point that's been central to his you know, still relatively new political career, the idea of uh, the uh, primacy of nation states, of, of sovereignty and such. And so the way he threaded this needle was, again, to say that uh, you can be um, looking out for number one. In effect, every country can have its own version of an America first policy and they can still um, interact uh, through the United Nations on issues that rise above individual national interests. So these are the two themes. Uh, they did sort of at some time bump into one another, uh, but uh, his mission, again, was to try to thread the needle between someone who's been uh, himself skeptical in the past of the utility of organizations like the United Nations. But in this case, saying uh, on North Korea and on Iran, I really think the world needs to come together around yeah. what the U.S. wants and act. Well, Margaret, you know, I'd love to just get your big picture sense of how this speech was likely received. Uh, he did stay on script. He did quote uh, historical figures in American history. Uh, what was your first impression? Uh, it, it, we're very much interested in, in looking around the room, not just to hear what he was saying, but to watch how people were reacting. And I was interested in seeing some of the notes from my colleagues who were uh, on the floor and sending color, uh, some key U.S. allies uh, holding on to every word, be it Israel or uh, be it Japan, uh, some other countries, ministers at times uh, going ahead, checking their, their phones for notes, uh, kind of in and out of uh, the stream of, of what he was saying. Uh, and then, of course, um, uh, looking for where a couple of uh, the countries who were targets of these discussions stood in the room. Uh, earlier, before he began to speak, um, North Korea's foreign minister appeared to be in the room. Later on, uh, not as visible. So uh, I think we're going to see the reaction from the world begin to trickle in. There were a couple of lines uh, that were important for a domestic audience, such as the president's uh, talk about Venezuela and how the problem was in fact, the ideology of socialism, uh, that did not go over real big right. in the room. And at the same time, uh, some of the discussions about the need to act, uh, the scourge of Iran or the problems in North Korea, there seemed to be a lot of agreement in the room. So um, different messages for different people. And this is always true for a U.S. president. He's talking at once to the world and to his own uh, base, not right. so well, all of the American voters, but particularly his base. And again, his base is a base that is inherently skeptical of the value and the utility the United Nations. Margaret Tolliff, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.